All right, so we're launching into Hebrews chapter 9, but it's basically a continuation of the, the comparison of the priesthood of Melchizedek to the priesthood of the Levitical priesthood. And uh, it's not so much an issue that we would struggle with, but it, it's definitely an issue that if you, if you were a, a Messianic Jew uh, to whom this letter was originally written, it would be an issue and a struggle for you. And I imagine it would still be uh, a struggle for Jews today to understand that, that Jesus, A, was the Messiah, and as the, as the one who was prophesied would come forth to hold not only the office of, of priesthood, but also the office of king, right, which was unheard of, uh, as kings were to come from the line of Judah and priests from the line of Levi. And uh, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah and so rightly sits on the Davidic throne and comes um, and also occupies the office of high priest. But his priesthood is of a better and a different priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Okay, so that's kind of what we talked about. So let's just look at the notes a little bit here just to kind of um, just to reiterate things that we've said multiple times over the weeks gone by, the Hebrew Christians uh, were, uh, they were at a place where there was, they were facing potential great loss and they were beginning to waver. Now it's important to remember that you, uh, where, wherever Paul went in his missionary journeys, he was always followed by Judaizers, right? And so you read about that you read about that in Galatians, you read about that in his epistles. It seemed like wherever Paul went, Judaizers will, would follow. And they would, the Judaizers would, to the Gentiles, they would say to them, in order for you to be saved, you have to be circumcised and you have to follow the law. Right? And then to, to the Messianic Jews, they would say, well, you know what Paul is saying is right, but you also still have to follow the law. So they were, you know, they were, they were, they were in a difficult place, and so they were, they were facing potential persecution not only from their countrymen, fellow Jews, but they were also beginning to feel pressure now from the, the outward persecution of, Christi of uh, Christians throughout the empire. So this was a real struggle uh, for them. They were anxious and afraid of what was coming, and some of them were thinking of going underground. Some of them were were thinking of actually going back to Judaism at least during the time of persecution and then after, you know, uh, repent and go back to Christianity. And then there was the legitimate struggle of being a Jew and accepting the fact that the, that the, uh, the office of Messiah um, and the teaching of the Messiah would be higher than that of angels and of Moses and of course the Levitical priesthood. So it was, it, was, uh, it was difficult for them. And so the author of Hebrews exhorts them to keep going and keep growing and that there was no turning back. I have in here, you know, uh, Hebrews 10.38, which says that the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, it's not referring to loss of salvation, but it's referring to there's going to be real loss uh, in, in drawing back. 
So faith is tried, exposed, and purified in the furnace of fire. He, in this section of Hebrews, seeks to encourage them by contrasting what they had left, Judaism, to what they were moving towards, that is, true Jehovah worship. They were moving towards a better hope based upon a better priesthood and a better covenant. The priesthood and covenant dealt with externals only. It was temporary and transitory and could not deal with the heart issue. It could not deal with willful sin. So here's where I wanna, I'd like to stop and, and talk a little bit about the sacrifice, okay? So, um, so let me start by, uh, I guess let's, let me start generating the conversation by, by, by asking this question. Who performed the first sacrifice? Who was the first? Because, it, because when we go back to where the sacrifices were originally initiated, it kind of sets the template for the way the sacrifice, what the sacrifice was meant to accomplish and what were the parameters of the sacrifice being valid. God did, right? So that takes us back. So, you know, I heard that and I said, well, I gotta look at that a little bit. So I went back and uh, noticed some things in Genesis chapter three. So let's go back in Genesis chapter three for a moment. Okay, in Genesis chapter 3, so we're all very familiar with this passage, um, and uh, they ate, but then I noticed something, I, you know, I asked myself the question, um, I'll start at verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Okay, so, so the question that arose in my mind, so they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. So at that point, they were cognizant of their being exposed and therefore vulnerable to whom? Because it, it strikes right at the heart of the twofold nature of the sacrifice, right? So, so they were cognizant of being vulnerable and exposed to each other. Because God is not in the picture at this point. Do you see that? Okay, so they, were, they ate of the fruit, they were in the garden, their eyes were open, and they realized that they were naked, right? And so with that realization of nakedness enters in two things, vulnerability, now they were vulnerable to each other, and what? Shame, right? So they sewed fig leaves together to cover up themselves up. Okay, so, so that deals with that. Now, let's jump down. Let's continue reading. Okay. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? 
So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the servant deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the servant, to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, so on and so forth. But drop down to verse uh, 20. Then Adam called his, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now do you notice there that at that point Adam changes his wife's name. What was her original name? Woman. And he changes her name to Eve, which essentially means a life giver or the one who would give life. So Adam understood that what God was promising in Genesis 3.15, that there would come a seed from the woman who would beat back the serpent, who had brought the curse upon all of creation, and that through her seed, the Redeemer would come. Okay? And so... And so therein was a promise from God. Okay, so what happens after that? And also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. Okay, so there we have the first sacrifice. And out of that first sacrifice comes a covering that is provided by God for in the material realm. There was already a covering that was promised, so a sacrifice has two components to it. it has, there has to be a spiritual covering, right? And it's the spiritual covering is meant to restore the relationship between man and God, but there also has to be a physical covering. The physical covering is meant to store a relationship between man and man. You see, that was the whole purpose of the Levitical worship system, the Levitical sacrificial system, what it, it was never meant to provide the spiritual covering. It was only meant to provide the material covering to restore the covenant relationship between the people of God. Okay? And the spiritual covering... Huh? How do you mean about the person-to-person uh, person within the covenant? Okay? The covering, the spiritual covering would only come by faith. Faith in faith in the time when God would bring the promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent. Okay? You with me so far? Something to think about. Okay? So now, now contrast that with the priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood versus the Levitical priesthood. The Melchizedekian priesthood is what brings the spiritual reconciliation 
through the promised seed. Whereas the Levitical priesthood, it covers the material side of it and, and maintains the covenant relationship between the people of God. Yes? But the day of a the day of atonement was meant to atone for the holy place being in the midst of a corrupt people, and was completely invalidated at the destruction of the first temple, because this is the point that I'm trying to make through all of this. Okay, in order for the sacrifice to be valid. In a sense, it has to be officiated by God. God has to be in attendance. There has to be a spiritual covering, right? The spiritual covering is promised in Genesis 3.15 through the seed of the serpent, those who would turn to the turn in faith, right? So in the old covenant, in the Levitical priesthood, the, the sacrifices were meant to, us to restore, to keep the covenant relationship in place all the while expecting the spiritual covering when one trusted in faith in the promise that God had made that he would bring a promised seed. Okay? So you need to have God in attendance. There needs to be a spiritual covering and there needs to be a material covering. You with me so far? I know I'm throwing a lot of new stuff at you, but it's, it's stuff to think about. And I'll tell you why. Because... When you consider those three parameters, okay, so, and I finally came, I came to this realization, and that's what, ge what generated the email to my rabbi friend, because we're on camera, I'm just going to say rabbi friend, is because according to Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel, yeah, Ezekiel chapter 10, the, the Shekinah glory departs from the temple. So God is no longer present. There mean, that means the sacrifices are no longer valid. Okay? So, and I think it was within, within a year after the glory departed, Nebuchadnezzar came in, destroyed the city, carried the ark away, so on and so forth. Now, the Day of Atonement is very specific that both the blood of the goat and the blood of the, of the, of the bull had to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. Right? And before the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, he had to throw incense. He had to burn incense so that the smoke from the incense would cover the mercy seat so that when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he wasn't killed. He wasn't vaporized instantly because he came face to face with the Shekinah glory. But in Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of the Lord departs from the temple and the city. And then a year later, the ark is is who knows where it is, right? So that means that from that point, from that point, until actually the second coming of Christ, there is no valid day of atonement. There is no, there is no restoration of the physical covenant relationship. It's only when Christ returns, now you have God in attendance, and you have the sacrificial system, which is 
You ever wonder why in the millennial temple the sacrificial system is reinstituted? And you hear people say as a remembrance, but that's not true. Because if you go to Ezekiel chapter 38, you'll read that the priests have to give, make a sacrifices for their sins. So there is still, so when you think about it, and that is still in play. Okay, but what about now? We're in the church age now. How do we, we have the spiritual covering, right? Because we it turned faith to the Messiah. But what about the physical covering? What about the physical sacrifice? Well, there's no temple. There's no ark. There's no Shekinah glory. Well, but this is the temple. That's right. And is there anywhere in the scriptures we're told to continue to make sacrifices? Turn to Romans chapter 12. I know I throw a, lot of, throw a lot of stuff at you, and I want you to think through this, because this really plays into where we're going in the next two chapters in the book of Hebrews. Yes, Hebrew, uh, Romans chapter 12. Oh. Uh, yeah. You see it? Yeah. Therefore I beseech you, brethren, by the tender mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. So during this age, that sacrifice takes place within us. God is present. We have the spiritual covenant. We have the spiritual covering because we've we've turned to the Messiah in faith and three the material sacrifice what that consists of for us is basically Romans 12 through 16 those are the parameters of how we are to make a living sacrifice okay so now so now during the millennial temple what's going on you have Jesus once again in the Holy of Holies, and you have the sacrificial system reinstituted. Because the presence of God returns. So when you think about it, what's going on now in the church age is actually an anomaly. Well, it's the end stage. No, it's not the end stage, because in the millennial temple, it returns back to the sacrificial system it, no, it's it's a different system. When you look at it, it's different, right? No, I'm, I'm thinking the end stage is when we're more like Jesus in this church. Yep. So, so this at, and that's how you make sense of. Because I've always, what's the purpose of sacrifices in the millennial temple? That's why, because there are three components that are required: the presence of God, spiritual covering, material covering. Presence of God, spiritual covering is Jesus the Messiah, the promised seed. The material covering is what restores the relationship between members of the covenant. Right? And so they make sins. Now, if you look at, turn for a moment to Leviticus chapter, I think it's Leviticus chapter 14.
baby is. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. Okay, I'm going to start at verse 11 on Leviticus 16. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering for which, uh, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Okay? He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat before the mercy seat. So he shall do what? He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. So he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting. Notice, he reemphasizes that. For the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Okay. So you have, so, so now that all, that all goes away and becomes invalid after, after the presence of the Lord leaves the temple at the end of the first temple period. So I asked my, Doug, you were in on a conversation. I, I sent you the email chain. So I asked my, my uh, rabbi friend, I said, you know, maybe I'm wrong here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but according to what I read in Leviticus chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement specifically says that the blood of the goat and the blood of the bull had to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. If the ark went away somewhere at the end of the first temple period, that means that from the, from the time of the rebuilding of the temple or the second temple period till now, there's been no valid Day of Atonement. And his reply was, well, he, he, you know, he sent me a couple of, uh, couple of readings from the Talmud that said that the ark was placed on a foundation stone in the Holy of Holies. Therefore, the sacrifices in the Second Temple period were valid because even though the ark was gone, the foundation stone was still there. I've never read anything in the Old Testament about a foundation stone in the Holy of Holies. My thinking is it was placed on a cart. But regardless, whether it was a cart or a foundation stone, the mercy seat was no longer there. That's right. The mercy seat was no longer there. And so there was no valid sacrifice. So there's no valid... so. So again, you guys kind of missed the, you know, kind of all the gyrations to get here. But sacrifices had to fulfill two requirements. They had to provide a spiritual 
covering. And they also, the spiritual covering was that which restored the relationship between man and God, right? That spiritual covering was provided by God with the promise that he made to Eve in the Garden of Eden that her seed would crush the head of the serpent, right? And therefore restore, therefore it would be her seed that would provide the spiritual covering or be the sacrifice, right, the Messiah, his sacrifice, which would restore the relationship between God and man. And it was at that point that Adam changed his wife's name from woman to Eve or the giver of life because Adam understood that she would be the one who would bring life back to a creation that had fallen as she would bring forth the Messiah. Okay, as a matter of fact, if you were to read on in the Genesis account and actually look at, uh, she actually took that promise literally and believed that her firstborn son, Cain, was the Messiah. Okay, all right. So from, so from there, so three things need to be, when you look at the sacrificial system, God has to be present, there has to be a spiritual covering, and there has to be a material covering, right? So with the Levitical priesthood, with the priesthood that was initiated in the, let me move this back a little bit. With the priesthood that was initiated in the Old Testament, you had the presence of God on the mercy seat in the ark in the Holy of Holies. You with me? Okay. When, when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Babylon, destroyed the temple, the ark went somewhere. We don't know, nobody, well, I have to read you know, the, he sent me a well, bunch of stuff. Well, well, not according not according to what I looked at briefly today that he sent me. Really? Yeah, that it's it was stashed away, you know, by rabbis. Okay. So I in any case, so when they constructed the se the second temple, right, they were still doing sacrifices, but none of those sacrifices were valid. None of those sacrifices restored satisfied the material requirement of of the sacrifice because God was no longer in attendance because the glory of God departed from Israel at that point at the end of the first temple and it won't be restored until Christ comes with a second coming because once he initiates the millennial kingdom you guys are familiar with that term millennial kingdom okay so at the second coming of Christ, Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem on the seat of David for a thousand years, okay? And in the millennial temple, the temple will be rebuilt and Christ will rule the world from the temple. He will go into the Holy of Holies and remain there. So you have the presence of God again and therefore the sacrificial system is reinstituted in the millennial kingdom. Okay, all right. Now, what was the point of all that? Well, because the Levitical priesthood was never meant to bring the spiritual covering. The Levitical priesthood was only meant to restore covenant relationship between the members of the covenant. That's it, right? So the penalty for violating and by the way, it was only for unintentional sin, right? They were to be cut off. 
right? Their, their relationship under, under God's law, their relationship with the people were to be cut off, was to be cut off. This allowed that relationship to remain only in the case of unintentional sin, mind you. It did nothing to address the eternal consequences of the sin. You see that? I know I'm giving you a lot to think about, right? And that's what I do. I wake up at 3.30 in the morning. I sit there. I put my feet up on the desk in the dark, and I think about these things. And then, oh, yeah, what's this? What's that? And then when daylight brings, I boot up my computer and start looking at Bible verses. Okay? So think it. This is the way the gears are turning in my head, right, on this. So check it out. I might be wrong. If I am, tell me. But I think I'm on the right track here. But... What we have is a better priesthood, and, and that's what the author is driving at here, is that the first covenant, the law, and the ordinances did nothing. It wasn't flawless in that it, it forced an external obedience, but it did nothing to change the heart. It did nothing to change the inward man. Okay, with that said, burned up all my time on that. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Let's pick it up there. Okay. Then indeed, the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called a sanctuary. And behind the second veil the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing these, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins. There it is, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating that the way into the holiest of holy was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are, made, are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So the sacrifices did nothing to purify the individual, not only of his sin, but his, of his cognizance of sin, of his cognizance of being bankrupt before God. That didn't do that. It was merely a sign pointing to something else, pointing to the true priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood, the priesthood of Christ, and pointing to the true tabernacle. So this was all what was made in the wilderness was just a, a copy or a shadow of what's really, what's really in heaven. Okay. Again, it was... Symbolic for the present time in, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service 
perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. Okay, so let's just look at, I don't want to go any further because that's as far as my notes go, but let's go into the notes. Um, well, let me get you guys some notes. Yeah, there are notes right there, Matt. Uh, to just break down some of the, you know, um, some of what's in here. Okay, so on page one, 2B, the author introduces the old order. Even though it was earthly and man-made, it was still valuable as a teaching tool. So verse 2 talks about the holy place or the first room where the menorah was placed or the seven-branched candlestick or lampstand. Uh, those scripture references there will take you back to the Old Testament and to into how they were constructed and a, a more fuller description of what they looked like. The table of showbread. In verses 3 to 5a, we have a description of the Holy of Holies or the second room. In verse 3, he notes that the Holy of Holies was separated from the holy place by a second veil. The first veil separated the holy place the holy place from the inner court. This second veil was the veil that was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died. And you can read about that in Matthew chapter 27, uh, verse 51. Verses 4, 5, and 8 deals with the contents of the Holy of Holies. The golden censer, the altar of incense, located just outside in front of the second veil, and the emphasis is not location, but its liturgical function. So as the incense went up, it passed through the second veil into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. And because now the mercy seat, you know, and, you know, on the mercy seat, you're familiar, you're familiar with the, you know, the, the cherubim with their wings overshadowing the mercy seat. So in that little space there, the Shekinah glory dwelt. Right? The, the glory of God dwelt there. And so the incense moving through the second veil into the Holy of Holies and shrouding the Shekinah glory allowed the high priest to go in there and to survive the encounter. Okay? Here's what I found. Yeah, okay. Okay. So, so there you have... Um, also the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, the two tab tablets of the covenant, and the cherubim overshadowing, overshadowing the mercy seat. The author's intent was not to give a detailed description, but rather to illustrate an outline of the way of approach to God pictured by this tabernacle. The overview is to show that the old system consisted of a system of barriers between the worshiper and God. The outer court separated Gentiles from Jews. The inner court separated Levites from non-Levites. The first veil separated priests from non-priests, and the second veil separated the high priest from common priests. So when you look at when you look at the, the construction of the tabernacle, so in the center you had you had the the holy place, and part of the holy place was the Holy of Holies. And then there was a, a court around that, right? Into that area, only priests could enter, 
right? Into the holy place, into the holy of holies, only the high priest could enter. And then there was a, a courtyard into which not even regular Jewish people could enter, but only those who were of the priesthood. Then you had the outer courtyard where, where Jews, where the Jewish people could enter into, as, but they could not venture into the second, second courtyard. And then outside, there was no place for Gentiles. No place for Gentiles. They were completely excluded, okay? And what happened, what, happened to, what happened to the court of the Gentiles in the Second Temple period? It became a place of commerce. It became a place of commerce. The Gentiles had no place. Yeah, no place, right? So that's, that's what, so there were, so when you look at the physical barriers, right, there, were, there was one barrier that only one man could enter once a year, but he could only survive the encounter if he burned incense and it shrouded the glory of God. And then there was a restriction in another place where you had to be a priest. You had to be a priest class to go in there. And then there was another restriction where only a Jew could enter, a Jewish person could enter, and there was no place for Gentiles. Completely excluded. Yeah. Yep, and that's it. Okay. Okay, so uh, I read verses 6 and 7 already. Let's drop down under that to point A. These things thus prepared refers to the entire tabernacle ministry with all of its furnishings. The first part, the holy place, only the Levite could enter there. Every day, twice a day, the Levite had to enter and burn incense. Every day, twice a day, the Levite had to trim the lampstand. Weekly, the showbread had to be changed. The emphasis here is on repetition. Every day, repeatedly, the same thing took <coughs> place. The Levite's work was never done. The second part refers to the Holy of Holies. The high priest only entered once a year on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. On this day, he entered at least twice and perhaps as many as four times, but that was the only day he could enter. Only one man out of one family, out of one clan, out of one tribe, out of one nation, out of one race, out of all of humanity could ever enter the Holy of Holies or in the presence of God. With blood to atone for his own sins and for the sins of the people. The earthly priest who is making the offering in the earthly tabernacle needed the same protection of blood as did all the others. Okay? Over on page 3. First he had to go in to the Holy of Holies to offer blood for his own sins. Only then could he offer blood for the sins of the people. Although the Holy of Holies offering was a once-a-year offering, it still involved repetition year in and year out. There was very limited access to God. Only the high priest, only once a year, and only with blood. So there were real limitations of this service. It only covered sins committed in ignorance. And so, uh, you know, there's a definition of ignorance. Okay, let me, I might as well read verses 8 to 10. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, 
while the first tabernacle was still standing, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshy ordinances opposed, imposed upon the time of the Reformation. So the Holy Spirit is the one who stands as the interpreter of the Levitical system. He taught us, he teaches us three lessons. Number one, in verse eight, the first tabernacle was unable to provide a way of access to God because the Holy of Holies was limited to the high priest. There, there were, again, a series of exclusions, which I've already read. Dropping down to verse nine, number two, the old system was merely a figure for the present time. It was simply a historical type of something used as an illustration for the present generation. The weakness of the Levitical priesthood is evident because it was not able to make the worshiper perfect in, relationship, in relation to his conscience. The priest walked away after offering a sacrifice. He knew his sins were covered, but he left still with a consciousness of sin. Thus the tabernacle stood, th this is according to Arnold Fruchtenbaum, as an ongoing parable. Number three, the Holy Spirit points out the weakness of the Levitical system in that he points out that it was based upon cardinal, carnal ordinances. Not passing judgment upon them, what he is saying is that the old system was dependent upon the strength of the flesh. It was external only, and that's why it's temporary, to serve as a parabolic illustration until the time of the end. Okay, and then you have the seven um, branched candlestick. Okay, so let's just drop down to the conclusion. In conclusion, the earthly tabernacle provided limited access to God. The Gentiles were completely excluded. The earthly tabernacle provided a limited cleansing for sins committed in ignorance and it did nothing to remove the consciousness of sin. The Messiah functions in a better tabernacle, the heavenly one, which provides unlimited access to God with an adequate sacrifice and um, so on and so forth. Okay, so I know I threw a lot at you tonight, but spend some time and think it through um, because as we'll see as we move on now, that part of the mission of Christ in offering up his body is that the heavenly tabernacle that this is all a figure of required cleansing as well. And if you read on, you can read that. That he, he had to cleanse the tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle with his own blood which kind of answers the question of, in my estimation, you remember when, uh, when uh, Jesus appeared in his resurrection and I think it was Mary and he said, do not touch me, I've not yet ascended to my father. Uh, that, that he had not yet at that point ascended and cleansed the heavenly tabernacle with his blood. But we'll read on with that in weeks to come. Any questions? Sorry guys, this is the way my mind works. It just like a Tetris game, like a biblical Tetris game. I keep rearranging pieces until they seem to fit into place. Um, as we decided that we're going to stop after tonight, 
um, and come back after the holidays because everybody's got stuff going on. Any questions? Okay, so let's just close it off with this. What? Okay, so what does this all mean? Like, what is? How does this impact my my daily life? Right? What can I take away from this? To you know, I'm I'm a theoretical type of guy. You know, and sometimes I can get lost in theory because that's where I live, you know, kind of. What is, how does this, okay, so how does it affect your life? Knowing this, how does it affect my life or how should it calibrate the way that, that I structure my life? Well, one, um, let me just leave you with this. I don't know if you guys were in on this part that, that the sacrifices are still required today, right? But our sacrifice is different, right? God is present. God is present in that he lives inside of us. We have the spiritual covering, right? Because we've received Christ as our Messiah. So we have the spiritual covering. But there's still a physical sacrifice required to maintain our relationship with each other. And see, here's where it, it comes. We can't maintain a relationship with God if we're not maintaining a relationship with each other. You see that? You, you can't, you, yeah, you know, the whole concept, I, I mean, I don't want to get technical on it, but the whole concept of the Lone Ranger Christian is kind of a self-defeating yeah. argument. There's no such thing. You can't be in a relationship with God. Being in a relationship with God requires you to be in a relationship with your brothers and sisters, right? So now, in order for that to happen, we know God is present. We know we have the spiritual covering. But the physical sacrifice is given to us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, present your, your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, right? So if you were to read Romans chapter 12, verse 16, those are the parameters of the physical sacrifice, physical sacrifice that we are required to to make now for the rest of our lives. Okay, again, so that's an obligation that I have now, right? That means I have to study the scriptures. I can't, can't know what the parameters are of what I am supposed to offer up as a physical sacrifice without knowing what the parameters are. That means we have to study the scriptures. That means we have to be in fellowship with each other. Right? So what else? What else can you take away from that? All this mumbo-jumbo that I've talked about tonight. Any ideas? Anything else? Anybody else have anything to add? Um, I don't know if it's this but I, I was just a little bit on the younger concept, thinking that um, we're responsible for all the inheritance that we have in Christ. And I don't know how much overlap there is between particular chapter or epistle. Yeah. There's only one or two, two there that aren't mentioned. Yeah. Well, 
the thing is that with Romans that you intend you essentially have the gospel. Well, yeah. So you have you know you know the the threefold break of sin, salvation, sanctification, right? right, right. So uh, so the salvation part picks up from the sanctification is from Romans twelve to sixteen. Yes. Yep. Yep. And that involves a lot of things. It involves being in relationship with each other. You know, all of the all of the things that you know we hear about all the time that we read about, right? And so, so what is verse twenty nine and eighty? Which is Well, we can we confess the sins to God, but we because the, the sacrifice is made. Right. So we enter through that sacrifice, right? right? So it, it is a, a, an acknowledging to God that that we have uh, dishonored Him, that we disobeyed Him, and rebelled. So, so, so remember, the spiritual sacrifice is an eternal sacrifice, right? right? And it covers, and it covers, and it covers willful sin, which we, you know, we all, we all do, right? Um, so, so we acknowledge that, and we access the the efficiency of the spiritual sacrifice, because it says, if we confess our sins, we have forgiveness. Plus, there's the promise that we'll be cleansed of that sin, right? Right, and so. Um, and and that's that's the thing you know i try and put myself in the mind of a jewish person who was living under the old covenant who knew there was no covering for willful sins nothing sin the offerings were only for sins committed in ignorance right so imagine living your life with that weight on you right uh, you you're done you know I, there's there's no hope, right? Um, but we we commit we commit sins in ignorance, and we commit sins willfully. Imagine living under under the knowledge that there was nothing that could reconcile you to God because you willfully sinned, right? Imagine the weight of that. I think I think if you can imagine maybe the weight that Judas felt imagine the weight that Judas felt because the scripture is clear that Satan entered him and took possession of him and he betrayed Jesus and afterwards he came to his senses but imagine the weight that he carried for however long he lived until he finally committed suicide. Field of blood? No, the, the children's going to throw the, the coin, 16, 
cases of silver lead to this evidence. Yeah. And I was like, wait a second, that's what Judas did. Like, it was a passage that was verbally the same to me. Yeah. Yeah. Can you ask a question? Yeah. Jesus came to Bethany for five months before Judas. Is that the same? Or was his point different? At that point, does it really matter? Well, no, I know, but he's living with the weight of guilt. Well, I think he was living with the weight of guilt because because he realized what he had done. And that he... Because don't forget, Jesus gave him kind of a, you know, under the breath talking to, Mm -hmm. said, you know what you're going to do, go do quickly, right? And it was at that point, uh, if if I remember correctly, it was at that point that Satan entered him and took control. When Jesus... So... So there's another thing to think about. Satan could not possess Judas until Jesus said to him, go do what you're going to do, go do now. Right? At that point, Satan takes over. But don't forget, the plot was hatched before Satan took possession. Right? And so, but my point is, think about living under the weight of that, that you were damned. You were just damned. So, so I think the law is meant to say, well, wait a minute. The offerings were for sins that were committed unintentionally. I've committed intentional sin. There's no hope for me. I have to live under the weight of that. But the point being is that there was a higher priesthood coming who would deal with that and who dealt with that. And so we have hope even though even though we sin willfully, there's hope for us. And the day is never never that dark, never dark enough to obliterate the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, the hope that we have of a better priesthood. If you think about Yeah. So even if the intentional sins were covered by the offerings of the of the tabernacle of Jesus, there was still a point of this where Genesis three that someday this is going to be fixed. Mm-hmm. So it's not entirely despairing. It should take some prophetic to trust God's promise. Yes, although all but you still have to deal with the physical consequences oh, yeah. of that, you know, which is we don't understand it because we live in a basically in a society now that we're kind of disconnected from each other. But, you know, family units and communities and, uh, you know, if you uh, like, I think I mentioned this before. I was a member of a church up in Blanford and they had a continuous deacons record dating all the way back to 17. 35 and I found the the actual journals from the 1700s and I was flipping through and reading them and I found um, 
where they had an excommunication proceeding against a member of the church because he was transporting a load of fish to Connecticut on Sunday. I'm like, really? They're going to kick this guy out of the church because he's, he's transporting fish? Because they were strict legalists. Mm -hmm. And it's like, in our time, it's like, yeah, so what? They're going to kick me out of the church. I'll just go to the one down the street. You know, but in that time, you, if you were excommunicated from the church, you were essentially put out of the community. You lost, you, you lost your entire reference of relationship. You were an outcast, you know, and so that's the way when we look at, you know, the penalty for violating the Levitical law, it's hard for us to envision it because we don't live in that way anymore. But they were completely cut off. You know, um, I, I've told you about my Hebrew tutor. I asked her one day, I said, well, what would happen if, if, uh, if you converted to Christianity? And she came from the most liberal wing of Judaism. She said, oh, my family would disown me. They would never have anything to do with me again. And speaking to my rabbi friend, you know, we talk, we're friends, we're cordial with one another, but he makes no bones about it when he says it is better for a Jew to die than to be converted to Christianity, right? Um, so. Excommunicated from the community. Yep. So, so we, it's hard for us to appreciate just what was involved in violating the covenant, you know? Okay, I've gone over time. Yes. No, his fate was sealed. Peter's was as well. That's why Jesus prayed for him. He said, "Same yeah. one, six years loose." Yeah, his fate was sealed. 